Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as the year ends, it's hard not to think back on how it started with the incredible violent assault on the Capitol by a crowd seeking to prevent the declaration of Joe Biden as president. We talked with organizer and strategist Dorothy Benz the next day about the import of January 6th. While response to the insurrection has come slowly, states are cracking down on peaceful protests. We talked about that with the ACLU's Vera Eidelman around the 4th of July. That's today on Counterspin. People saw for themselves the boggling scenes, crowds of Trump supporters storming the halls of Congress, busting into offices, yelling for lawmakers to come out, trying minimally to disrupt the ceremonial electoral count declaring Joe Biden president. But the story will be, is being shaped by news media in subtle and unsubtle ways. Will media act to report and investigate and challenge and demand as though they really understood those connections? Confronted with such boundary-breaking in multiple senses, many people will want to hear that it was just a small, fringe group of zealots abetted by a few law enforcement bad apples in service to an aberrational individual president who's anyway on his way out. Will corporate media sell the story that things got scary for a minute, but belief in the system is the way to safety? Joining us now is political scientist Dorothy Benz, a writer, organizer, and strategist. She has many years of work in frontline struggles here in the U.S. She joins us by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Dorothy Benz. It's great to be here. Well, my brain at first sort of went to language. You know, is protester the best label when the target is the democratic process? Is chaos the most evocative description for a planned and predicted action with some measure of evident official sanction? Now I'm reading unprepared. Everyone was unprepared. But there are deeper questions about corporate media's role here just to throw a dart, while they've recently begun to qualify it, elite media spent years referring matter-of-factly to voter fraud, despite its virtual non-existence, because they simply had to suggest a Democratic equivalent to evidence of Republican voter suppression, lest they be accused of bias. So the idea that you can just declare fraud without evidence has been well established by the press itself. That's one of the things I'm thinking of. What are some of the things that are coming to your mind as you look at this early stages coverage? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is Masha Gessen's warning four years ago after Trump was elected when they said, believe the autocrat. And in the intervening four-plus eternal years, as the left and as Black Lives Matter activists and immigrant rights advocates have raised the alarm over and over again about rising political violence, about the profoundly anti-democratic, racist policies of the administration. We have been called alarmists. We have been told it's not that bad. We have been told, you know, basically to, to calm down. 
and we could see this coming, as could anybody actually who's been on social media for the last three or four weeks. This violent piece of insurrection was planned openly on encrypted channels. There were, I saw yesterday on Twitter, there was merch. There were people in t-shirts that said Civil War, January 6, 2021. So unprepared and surprised is the last thing that anyone should have been, whether that's the Capitol Police or the media covering this story. Absolutely. Well, many people have noted, you know, refused to deny, you could say, that everything would have been different yesterday from beginning to end, including before yesterday, as you're noting, if these people were black or were brown or were disabled, you know, really anything but what they were. I would add that that would extend beyond the day, you know, had these been black people, there would be real world lasting repercussions for all black people, right? And if you complained, anyone, all anyone would need to say would be like 1621, man, you know. Mm -hmm. The point is, talking about how differently they would have been treated if they were black, say, it's not a rhetorical exercise. It's not a game of what if, you know, that contrast is really the story, right? It is. And it goes well beyond the obvious I mean, so obvious that even some of the mainstream media has noted it, that Black Lives Matter activists would have been treated differently, that, you know, Native Americans defending their land and their legal rights who were water hosts in sub-freezing temperatures at Standing Rock were treated differently, that activists who were just begging their senators not to kill them by eliminating their health care were ripped out of wheelchairs and thrown in handcuffs. I mean, yes, those are the obvious differences as opposed to the kid glove treatment that, that the white nationalists got yesterday. But the deeper problem is really the entire white nationalist project that, you know, as you alluded to in the introduction, this whole venture rests on. The fact that the police were so-called unprepared, I saw that word several times in the media coverage, it's not that they were unprepared, it's that they were prepared for white nationalists, which to them is not a crisis in the same way that black people demanding rights is, or that people insisting that public health care and national health care should be a thing. The problem goes much deeper there, and it is both a problem of how we have governed and a problem of how the police and the military have been central to white supremacy. Structurally, foundationally, ideologically, The function of the police has always been to defend the system as it exists, and the system is a white supremacist system. The ruling power started 500 years ago with settler colonizers. It went on to include genocide, slavery, strike-breaking in the capitalist, in the more modern capitalist era. It has never included defending democracy. That is a central understanding of, of how the police work. They weren't overwhelmed. You know, they knew. They just didn't think it was a problem. I can't keep playing that imagine if game because I'm really thinking every black candidate forever would be side eyed, you know, you know, by the media. So if you don't win, are you going to are your people going to riot? We know that you all don't really believe in democracy. I don't think media as oh, my gosh, as they are right now, I don't think they're really taking on board the, the counterfactual that they're sort of 
thinking about. And then more cynically, I sort of think, in contrast, there won't be the same kind of repercussions for people who not just look like the insurrectionists from yesterday, but who think like them, you know, except that maybe media might seek them out, you know, to say, you're the good Trump dead ender, you know, Um, you know, what makes you tick? Why didn't you storm the Capitol? Yeah, I saw a comment this morning from Ben Ehrenreich, who was talking about the media label of a mob, right, reaching for sort of a, a classist term instead of calling them fascists or or neo-Nazi or racist or white supremacist and not calling them just protesters because rightly they were trying to differentiate between let's say Black Lives Matter or healthcare protesters but not going for the term that's really there. It is difficult to grapple with the language around here. We're in kind of new territory, but what we do see is a an unwillingness to use the terms white nationalist, to use white supremacist in connection with this kind of thing. And I think it is part of media's desire to splinter people off, to say this really is a fringe and discourage the connections between these people and, in fact, the mainstream of the Republican Party and of many U.S. institutions. I think that that is absolutely right. There's kind of two things going on there in that I would call it a soothing effort to make this not a bigger problem, right? The larger problem is not contextualizing it in white supremacy. The larger problem is not admitting that the entire American project is a white supremacist project. You know, the media did point some fingers at Donald Trump yesterday, rightly, but they seem to exempt almost wholly the entire rest of the Republican Party. This morning on the New York Times' homepage, at least on the app, They had a bunch of quotes, and they were all from Republicans, making them look really principled. You know, Graham, McConnell, and and Leffler saying, you know, well, this isn't the right thing to do, as if these people hadn't been feeding this same right-wing monster for the last four years, not to mention the last four weeks. Right. So that's like one way in which the media is trying to create a respectable-looking set of Republicans in the middle of what is not that. The other is not talking about the larger shift here, which is the assault on democratic norms and the assault on democracy itself, which has moved from sort of a cloaked phase, you know, voter ID laws that we pretend are just about voter fraud or that are somehow, you know, facially neutral or whatever, mass incarceration, which, you know, disenfranchises and create second-class citizenship for, you know, millions and millions of people, moving away from that cloaked phase to this really overt phase and, and kind of testing what works. Like, well, let's throw some lawsuits at it. Let's try that. Let's try to, like, directly shake down some officials and threaten them. Okay, let's try that. You know, in in, uh, in October, Representative Mike Lee floated the term rank democracy, you know, as if, There is such a thing as too much democracy, like, you know, don't let the unwashed actually vote. And that's exactly what it is. And that is actually both a point of continuity and discontinuity with the entire American project. It has never been a country that is a democracy, a true democracy, in the sense of a universal franchise, let alone economic and social democracy. But it has pretended for a long time that it is. And... What the right is doing now is testing even that pretense, see how 
they can proceed. And that is a genuine fascist threat. And that's the danger of portraying this as marginal or fringe or failed, right? Portraying it as a failed attempt because, as you and others have said, that failure doesn't mean the end of it. No, absolutely not. I mean, yes, the, I've seen a couple of headlines about, like, well, Trump's on his way out anyway. And, you know, this morning as I was listening to NPR, the reporter or the anchor said, well, what did they think they would accomplish? You know, like they were talking about some, some kids on a playground. And it's it's not, you know, that they failed at overturning the election. It's that they succeeded in mainstreaming fascism and fascist tactics. That's really the point, and I haven't seen that anywhere um, in the mainstream media coverage. You know, similarly on New York One, or in a New York One tweet, I should say, to be exact, somebody was talking about how the property damage this morning was actually quite minimal. Yeah, it might be minimal, although, you know, when property damage happens at, at a Black Lives Matter protest, you would think it was a matter of national security. But I responded to that tweet by saying that's besides the point. The assault isn't on, you know... Capitol Hill property, it's on democracy itself. And that really has not been enough of the focus. As a matter of fact, in a general kind of a way, this is is a continuity from the entire Trump era where media have gone out of their way to normalize fascist tactics and trying to squeeze them, you know, square peg in a round hole kind of a style into the box of normal political imagery, where they describe something like they had a they had a headline yesterday before all this went down with objection to election results Hawley puts his party in a bind you know so they turned this over anti-democratic effort to overturn an election into an intra-party you know political quandary thus normalizing what is not normal or what should not be normal in an allegedly democratic society well, let me just kind of ask you finally, I, in a way, I mean, in a real way, corporate media's deepest role here is as champions of the capitalist neoliberal system that creates the real grievances that are weaponized and combined with, you know, white supremacist ideology. It doesn't create the white supremacy, but it drives those grievances that then become so combustible. And for the lesson, therefore, from yesterday to be don't push for real social change because that's fighting, you know, and that leads to violence, you know, for the lesson to be now both sides, both, you know, people who bust into the Capitol and Black Lives Matter and, you know, AOC, you know, that balancing, let's have civility, let's have colorblindness, let's look forward and not back. If media come out of the gate and that's the message, I feel like that's almost the most dangerous thing that could happen. It is the most dangerous thing that could happen. If you just shift the language a little bit and you imagine them saying, you know, anti-fascists really need to reach across the aisle and be in a spirit of bipartisanship with the fascists, well, then you would get the problem, right? But And that is exactly the problem. You know, part of it is the media habit, the very bad habit of pretend objectivity that that puts everything in a he said, he said frame, even when one set of claims is is factually demonstrable and the other set is is demonstrably untrue. And, you know, pretending that that those things are equivalent, but also 
just on the surface, pretending that being neutral in the face of a fascist threat is an acceptable journalistic value. It's not. We've been speaking with writer, organizer, and strategist Dorothy Benz. You can follow her on Twitter at DrBenz3. Dorothy Benz, thank you for joining us this week on Counterspin. It's my pleasure. What do the freedoms we tell ourselves define this country and its project actually mean in 2021? If you think the answers are to be found in history, you might be missing the point. The U.S. is engaged in radical, to-the-root debate right now about what democracy means, what civil liberties mean, and what kind of society we want to live in. We're in history right now. This is what it looks like. So what are the front burner issues in terms of free speech, rights of assembly, the right to protest, to disrupt business as usual, which we know is central to making actual change? Our next guest thinks about these questions every day. Vera Eidelman is staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy and Technology Project. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Vera Eidelman. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I wanted to talk first about BL versus Mahanoy Area School District. I know that many listeners haven't heard anything about this case, but it really gets at when do you lose your right to free speech or free expression? Can you talk a little bit about what was at stake in that case and your response to the court's ruling? Absolutely. So Mahanoy Area School District versus BL was the most important case about young people's free speech rights in the last 50 or so years. The issue at stake in that case was a school's authority to discipline a student for what they said or expressed outside of school hours, off of school property that was not harassing or threatening in any way. Our client in that case, BL, was when the case began, a 14-year-old who had tried out for the varsity cheerleading team at her public school. She unfortunately didn't make it onto varsity and was very upset. And she took to Snapchat on a weekend at a local convenience store with her friend, not wearing anything that reflected the school, not mentioning the school or anyone at the school by name, instead typing F school, F softball, F cheer, F everything on top of a photograph of her and her friend raising their middle fingers. They did not say F, they used the actual word Mm -hmm. just for clarity. And the school suspended her from the cheerleading squad for the entire year. And the ACLU of Pennsylvania took up her case arguing that the school could not discipline her under the diminished rules that attach to student speech rights inside of the school environment, given that she was out of school speaking her mind on the weekend online. And the Supreme Court ultimately agreed with us, holding that the school cannot apply the same diminished rule that attaches inside of school, outside of school, because otherwise students would be carrying the schoolhouse on their back 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unable to ever fully explore their views, unable to fully express themselves 
for fear of always worrying that they might be deemed, quote unquote, disruptive, which is the standard that typically applies in schools. And the court also recognized that the school itself actually has an interest in enabling students to engage in dissenting and unpopular speech, recognizing, of course, that what that means in any particular school district will vary by the reality of that school district, because the school really is, in the words of Justice Breyer, a nursery for democracy. And one of the goals of the school should be to teach kids what it means to have free speech rights. And as a parent with an activist child, I hear that word disruptive, and it just sets something off because obviously that is a contextual term, as you've just described, but that sounds a little worrisome just on its face at the level of language to make that the standard. Absolutely. That was the main thing that we were very worried about in this case, that the school might win in arguing that it can apply that very subjective viewpoint-based standard outside of the school. Well, so, okay, schools are nurseries to help kids develop their voice and to learn that they are allowed to use their voice and in terms of using it meaningfully in terms of changing things. So then those young people become adults, you know, and they want to go out in the street to use their voice. So now we're at my second question, which is this spate, not new but increasing, of anti-protest legislation. Can you just talk about the the range of laws that we're seeing spring up and what they are doing or trying to do? Yes. Unfortunately, we have, as you mentioned, seen the continuation and deepening of the anti-democratic, anti-protest legislative trend around the country. For at least the last five years now, we have seen legislators respond to vocal, powerful, full-throated advocacy, not by listening to what their constituents are saying, but instead by seeking to create new laws that would silence them. So examples of the types of laws range from increasing penalties on laws that already make something criminal. So, for example, laws that already criminalize trespass or refusal to disperse or failure to obey an officer. All of those things are already illegal, and these laws would seek to increase the penalties that attach. In some cases, the bills seek to increase the penalties, not just in terms of criminal time, which, of course, is incredibly impactful, but also in terms of restricting people's access to public employment, to public office, and even to public benefits. Things like access to scholarships for school, food stamps, and the like. In addition, some of these laws seek to really punish not unlawful conduct, but association. The fact that people are in the same place at the same time. A number of the bills that have been proposed, including some even that have passed, for example, in Florida, are incredibly ambiguous as to whether they punish an individual who has themselves engaged in violence or property destruction, for example, or every other person around when that occurs, regardless of whether they were involved, regardless of what they themselves think of that conduct. So we're really seeing a lot of bills and even a few bills that have become law 
that seek to criminalize association, criminalize the fact of gathering together to make our voices heard. I think if I could pick out one thing, the idea of laws that say it's okay to hit protesters with your car. You know, I just think that even for folks who, you know, may have complicated feelings, that's just mind-blowing. What's going on with that? I completely agree, and I think it's particularly mind-blowing given that these aren't just hypotheticals. We know that Heather Hare died in Charlottesville as a result of someone hitting her with his car. We've also seen many other protesters injured at protests by cars, and so I think it is a particularly perverse legislative trend that we are seeing. And a clear message that it sends to people who are thinking of joining with others and going out onto the streets is you better think twice because you might get hit by a car. And if you are, you might have no recourse. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let me ask you finally about media, because I often have noticed that, you know, broadly speaking, corporate media love people speaking up, you know, until they're an organized group and they're speaking up in the street and then somehow they move from being individuals with a voice to interested activists and it's somehow different. You know, it's like protest is great, but keep it quiet, you know, Um, and I see like NPR, which has done all kinds of favorable coverage, but Then I see this headline, wave of anti-protest bills, and anti-protest is in quotes, like maybe it's not true, wave of anti-protest bills could threaten First Amendment. Well, could and threaten, now we're at two degrees of separation. And I just... I just wonder if media are bringing home the threat that's happening here. So that's just me. But I would like to ask you, what would you like to see more of maybe from reporters or maybe less of in terms of coverage of this legislation, coverage of the protests and coverage of the real fight that we're in right now? That's an interesting question. I do think that one thing to keep in mind is that this really is an anti-democratic trend. Right. I think there are ways in which it will not be surprising to see who these laws get applied against. But at the same time, at their core, they are taking aim at, you know, where you started, one of our fundamental American rights, the right to protest. And that applies regardless of the message that is being expressed. And I think it's important to keep in mind that this is legislation that will impact people regardless of what they're expressing, simply because they are seeking to do what is so deeply American, to join together and speak out together and be in the same place with other people who they want to associate with. And I think that that is the thing that legislators should really be shamed for doing, the idea that they are trying to stop people from exercising one of their fundamental rights. We've been speaking with Vera Eidelman. She's staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. They are online at ACLU.org. Vera Eidelman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group. We're online at FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.